My family is rich. We have gold, lots of gold. I'm prepared to give you lots of gold. Now go! Well, I don't have it here. Now go! About the gold. Now gold! Now gold! Listen to me. Listen to me. Sometimes possession is an abstract concept. Hello and welcome to this second instalment of the Essence of Anarchy series. To recap where we've been so far, in the first episode, I defined anarchy as simply describing a consensual, as opposed to coercive, relationship. In future episodes, we are going to build on this proposition, but before we do so, we must first lay another foundational stone. We must examine the concept of property. What does it mean to say somebody owns something? How does ownership come about? And how can something that is owned change hands? Without exploring this, there will be no way to know what consent would even mean when it comes to discussing our material possessions. The dialogue at the start was taken from the TV show Game of Thrones. It comes from a scene where the clever Lord Tyrion Lannister is trying to explain to his somewhat dim-witted jailer, Maud, how he can own something that isn't directly on his person. One of the things I always think Game of Thrones did at its best was to contrast people operating on different levels of consciousness. Maud can't understand how a person can own something they don't physically have on them. He assumes he's being tricked and whacks Tyrion of his mace. Tyrion, incredulous, attempts to explain the idea of an abstract concept. Before we rush to judgement, perhaps we can have some sympathy for poor old Maud. We all have a casual understanding of property upon which we act. If we didn't, we just wouldn't be able to function in society. But could we explain how such a strange and particularly human concept as ownership comes about? I say human concept. My dogs seem to have some understanding of property. They know the front garden is their territory, to be defended from the postman and other such threats. And woe betide the hound who sticks its nose in another's feeding dish. They, however, like the rest of the animal kingdom, would have no concept of the kind of ownership at a distance we are all comfortable with. It's crucial we don't take our understanding of this for granted, and we properly examine it, so as to build on solid foundations as we go. To begin this exploration, then, I'm going to present a thought experiment based on one developed by the 17th century philosopher John Locke. Imagine a man walking along a beach. Let's call him Bob. In the distance, Bob spots a piece of driftwood. He fixes his attention on it, walks over, and picks it up. He then carries it home and proceeds to painstakingly carve it into a little statue, which he varnishes and places on his shelf. Now this all sounds rather jolly. Indeed, I have friends who do exactly this sort of thing, and I always admire them for it. One of them constructed the majority of the furniture in his house this way. I'm confident we can probably all agree that there's nothing objectionable going on here. Now if another man, let's call him Tom, visited Bob's house, decided he liked the look of the statue, and took it for himself, we'd probably all agree this feels wrong. It strikes an instant chord of unfairness. Poor Bob, putting in all that hard work, time and attention, 
only to have it taken from him. However, if Tom had spotted the wood on the beach five minutes before Bob did, we'd likely agree that it wouldn't be wrong for Tom to go and pick it up and do whatever he wanted with it. Something has happened, therefore, some process whereby the wood has magically acquired the property of being owned. It became Bob's property. But how? Is it something to do with the act of physically picking up the unowned item? Let's see. If Tom spotted Bob approaching the wood and darted in ahead of him, this might be rude, or just competitive, depending on what kind of person you are, but it's quite different from wrestling it from him after he's made contact. That's the line that, when crossed, strikes most people as out-and-out out wrong. How does it strike you? Of course, Bob might decide the wood doesn't suit his purpose and put it down again, in which case he abandons it and it returns to an unknown status. He may also decide to give his statue away or swap it for something. As long as this is consensual, ownership has changed hands. What does it mean to own the wood or the statue? The owner has the right to determine what is done with it. Bob can engage in his hobby safe in the knowledge neither Tom nor anyone else can ruin it for him. The question of whether this concept is God-given, inherent in the nature of reality, or merely a human contrivance, is one I'll leave alone just for now. What I want to focus on here is that this system, irrespective of where it comes from, seems to confer immense benefit. Beyond allowing Bob to enjoy his hobby, it also allows him to leave his home in the morning with the reasonable expectation he may return to it in the evening, without it having been taken over by someone else. This is sadly not a luxury everyone in the world enjoys. This system then grants a way by which people can come to own property. It also, crucially, places a limit on that ownership. A person can only own that which they have directly interacted with, or consensually exchanged. Bob cannot lay claim to every piece of wood on the beach. More importantly, no one can land on a beach, plant a flag, and claim to own the entire continent beyond it. This is of course how empires act, and has been referred to as the Columbus Complex. Now I'll address a couple of possible questions. Does this principle hold true, irrespective of scale? If it's fine for a person to own a fish pond, what about a lake? If a person can own oil to heat their home, what about owning all the oil in Arabia? We may look at this in more detail at a later time. For now, let's leave open the possibility that it may indeed be concerning if an individual or group came to own a disproportionate amount of something. I'm not suggesting property rights are set in stone. If some Dr. Evil figure did somehow manage to own all the world's water, I wouldn't suggest we just sit around and dehydrate to death whilst he cackles. Finding ourselves in this unlikely situation, we would of course disregard his ownership and act to take the water back. Similarly, a person in the altogether more likely situation of facing starvation is likely to feel justified in stealing to survive. And who would really disagree? We clearly rank human life as being more important than material possessions. The essential point is this. 
It is one thing to break the rules when doing so seems unavoidable, but quite another to disregard them altogether. To lose the principle of property is to tear away at the very fabric of society, opening us up to all sorts of predation and banditry. An additional point regarding the question of someone owning too much of something is this. It might be important to consider how the property was acquired in the first place and whether it fits with our definition of legitimate or whether it was stolen. It is certainly not always the case that individuals who own oil fields, for example, came to do so in the way I have described as being legitimate. Does property need to be held by individuals or could it be held communally? As long as it is consensual, there is no contradiction with property being held communally. We have this in most households where families share appliances, for example. If Bob consented to being part of a commune, maybe he would choose to give up his right to own his statue for what he perceived as a greater good. This is distinct from Tom making that decision for him if he felt Bob's statue would be better utilised on public display. A final note, I want to be clear that nothing I've said here has any relevance to the concept of intellectual property. Whether such a thing even exists is another topic of discussion entirely. It's an important one too, as many modern industries are shaped by this questionable form of property, for good or ill. And so that concludes the episode on property. I hope I have set a foundation upon which we now can build. Please let me know in the comments what you think. Next time, we will be looking more at the concept of consent, as I explain why I think it is an axiomatic good. 